The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are from Booz Allen's Integrated Air and Missile Defense Team. Uh, We're going to be talking about the future of integrated air and missile defense. And my guests today are Trey Obring. Trey is Executive Vice President uh, with a specific focus on directed energy, integrated air and missile defense uh, capabilities, and ballistic missile defense as well. He is joined by Christian Hoff. Christian is a principal with Booz Allen. He's the lead for the Office of the Secretary of Defense Market for Booz Allen. And finally, we have Matthew Hawes. Matthew is a principal focused on integrated air and missile defense, ballistic missile defense, and other efforts for the department uh, on behalf of the department. And guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is fascinating stuff, and it's very timely stuff when you're talking about you know North Korea, mm-hmm. right, and China and the South China Sea and all that kind of stuff going on. But um, I think we should obviously start with the basics which means defining what air and uh, missile defense really is. And um, I'm going to turn it over to you, Trey, to start that conversation. And just let, let's talk about the definitions. What is air defense and sure. what does it entail? Sure. So, uh, Roger, air defense is really any threat that comes through the atmosphere or into the atmosphere primarily. So think of it as aircraft, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, you can even have rockets and mortar fire can be considered uh, uh, air threats. And these threats are maturing and evolving over time. So uh, what we see now and into the future, for example, is a hypersonic missile uh, that really has uh, the aspects of a ballistic missile as well as a cruise missile. And a cruise missile is another form of air threat, in that case, an air breathing threat. So and we're talking about drones too, is that they fall Drones would be category? considered an air threat. And when you stop and think about it, one reason it's so, so important for us in America is Uh, We have been surprise attacked twice in our history on a a large scale. Uh, One was Pearl Harbor and one was 9-11. And both of those were air attacks. And that's uh, even an airliner in the wrong hands, uh, in enemy's hands, can be considered an air threat uh, to both the United States as well as as our allies and our forces. Okay, so air defense is one piece of it. The other is ballistic missile defense. Ballistic missile defense. And think of a ballistic missile as a, a powered uh, rocket or missile, and it is in a ballistic trajectory. Now, what does that mean? A ballistic trajectory means that it's guided by gravity. Uh, so think of a baseball. When you throw a baseball, as soon as that baseball leaves your hands, it's in a ballistic trajectory because it's guided purely by the thrust that you gave it when you left your hand and the gravity as it, as it bends over into the catcher's mitt or into the, uh, into the grass. So anything that flies a ballistic trajectory uh, is considered a ballistic missile. And they can range from very, very short-range missiles uh, that are only uh, uh, less than 100 miles in range all the way up to intercontinental ballistic missiles that can be thousands and thousands of miles in range. And some of the common characteristics that they have in addition to this ballistic trajectory is that uh, they have a boost phase where they're underpowered flight. Uh, they have a mid-course phase uh, that is a coasting phase. And then they have a terminal phase where they're typically re-entering the atmosphere. The coasting phase is in typically in space 
and then they re-enter the atmosphere toward their target. And all except for the very, very, very short-range missiles, that mid-course phase is in space. Okay, and so and when I when you describe that, I'm thinking about you know, Putin just talked about you know they've got a some super weapon right that's, that can't be shot down. You know, I think about the Iranians, right, right, and the threat right now to Israel in particular, right, right. but but growing as their technology increases. Exactly. Um, really, when you described it, I'm thinking about growing up in the TV age through the 1970s and 80s, and you saw all these things, and oh, you yeah. still see all these things exactly. like being used and. You talked about this different phases. Is that the kill chain or is what is the kill uh, no, chain? No, but it plays into the kill chain. Okay. So the phases I talked about are the phases of flight that a missile, a ballistic missile will go through. Now, what, what it means in terms of the kill chain is each one of those phases offers an opportunity or a vulnerability that can be exploited in order to defeat that missile. So if I can go through them very quickly. Sure, absolutely. In the boosting yeah. phase... What is uh, advantageous in the defense there is if you're able to hit that missile and destroy it in that boosting phase, you've in essence defended the entire world from that missile, and you've also typically shot it down over its own territory or close to its own territory. When you get into the boosting, into the mid-course phase or the coasting phase, now, unfortunately for the defense, it begins and can begin to deploy decoys and, and different types of countermeasures that can make it more difficult for you to determine what is the warhead and what is just a balloon or, or a, mm-hmm. uh, some other type of a countermeasure. But the advantage to the defense is that phase is typically the longest. It can be 5 to 10 minutes long. It can be 20 to 30 minutes long, depending on the range of the missile. And then the terminal phase, uh, as it reenters the atmosphere, again, the advantage to the defense is the atmosphere will typically strip away uh, any of the decoys and countermeasures so it exposes what the warhead is. Uh, the bad news is it's at such a speed at that point and it's such a short engagement time frame that you really have to be uh, well positioned in order to defeat it in that in that terminal phase. So some of the examples of defenses that we have right now, we do not have any defense in the boost phase of a missile. OK, we've never fielded one uh, in the mid course phase. We have the Aegis standard missile three interceptors that have been deployed. And uh, we also have the ground based mid course defense uh, interceptors in Alaska and California that can shoot down the medium range and longer range missiles in that mid-course phase. And then as you transition from mid-course into terminal, oh, we have the THAAD system, uh, the terminal high altitude area defense system that can operate in that region. And then the Patriot system operates in the terminal phase as well. So it, what you want to achieve is a layered defense where you're trying to defend. In so each it's all integrated. Right. 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 And is that one of the biggest challenge? I mean, the data Across the the integrated or are the, do is. they? Okay, it is. You want to situation awareness and making sure that you're not wasting shots, so to speak, mm-hmm. are one of the key. That's one of the key attributes of an integrated air and missile defense is to be able to integrate those together. But in addition, what we're talking about today is integrating not just the missile defense itself, but also air defense with that. And what would that sort of so? For look example. Like? Uh, if you are under attack, you're typically not going to be under attack by a single form. It could be a combination of aircraft, unmanned air drones, rocket mortifier, uh, missiles, both ballistic and maneuvering. So you want to be able to have, from a combatant commander's perspective, you want to be ha- able to have the situation awareness to know what the threats are, where they are, and optimize your defenses in order to defeat them. Yeah. So, and, I, and this, we might talk about this later in the show, but, you know, when you're describing it, I immediately think about uh, MIRVs, 
Yes, multiple uh, independent uh, reentry vehicles. Right. And how, you know, from ballistic missiles. Right. Not, you know, I guess I studied some of that stuff, yeah, you know, back in, right. the, in the Cold War, right? Right, right, right. That's part <laughs> a, of the big challenge. Part, that is part of a challenge of a country like Russia or China, for example, that could potentially have those types of capabilities. That is clearly one of the challenges you would have in, in any missile defense uh, system. So in that case, you want to try to get them in the boost phase? Exactly. Or... You would have to get in them in the boot, in, exactly. In, yeah. Or you would have to have interceptors that carry more than one kill vehicle so that you yeah. can match, the, so to speak, a, a, an interceptor with a, a MERV missile. But typically in the United States to date, we've only fielded missile defenses against countries like North Korea and Iran, uh, not against Russia or China that have the, have the much more advanced capabilities. Right. Okay, and and that those would be like the Patriot system and the Patriot, the Thad, the, THAAD, the GMB. Right. Those are all aimed primarily at well, the the Thad, the Patriot, uh, the Aegis can be they can be against any country in terms of the regional missiles, right. the shorter, medium range missiles, the ground based mid course, the long range missile defenses are aimed at the North Korean and the Iranian threat. Right. So you know what? We're already up on the first break, guys. Um, and I only got to talk to Trey. I apologize <laughs> to the Christian and, and Matthew. And when we come back, we'll definitely get you guys involved in the conversation. But that that was great stuff. My guests today are Trey Obring. He's the executive vice president with Booz Allen. Christian Hoff, he is a principal with Booz Allen Hamilton. And Matthew Hawes is also a principal with Booz Allen Hamilton. They are the integrated air and missile defense team. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. My guests today are Trey Obring. He is a Executive Vice President at Booz Allen. Christian Hoff is a Principal with a Booz Allen as well. And Matthew Hawes, who is also a Principal. And uh, I call these guys the Integrated Air and Missile Defense Team, domain expertise in this area. And Trey, in the first segment, we talked a lot about some of the basics and definitions and what all these things are. And I wanted to ask Matthew, are there real, real life examples right now that are going on out there where it's air defense, it's missile defense, and it's real time? Sure, Roger. And I, I think it's a good question. The the reality is many of us think about the is Israel as an example as a threat, but ballistic missiles are being used today in in both real conflicts and in in and in proxy wars. The two key examples are in Syria, where ballistic missiles have been threatened to be used and have been used, uh, delivering different payloads, and and the payloads could be chemical, biological, or or simple explosive. And then, of course, you have the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, who's in in a long-term struggle with Yemen. Uh, Yemen has been supplied with uh, different Scud variants, uh, which most people will remember from the Persian Gulf Wars, but supplied by Iran, as an example. Uh, and they have actually been engaging ballistic missiles, uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has, with Patriot, uh, a different version of Patriot, uh, Pac-2, actually. Uh, but those are two key examples of where they've been used today, uh, on top of the fact that there are numerous threats across the, the Middle East, whether we're talking about Iran or even in the South China Sea, where Taiwan and, and People's Republic of China have been ongoing with ballistic missiles stared at each other and, and U.S. For capabilities years, right? as yeah. well for, for many years. Yeah. And, and, of course, the South China Sea, why that becomes so important to everyday Americans is, is not only the investment with inside of South Korea and Taiwan and, and the global trade that yeah, occurs in the lanes, South China right? Sea. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do we learn from these real-life examples? You know, if they're using our technologies or technologies we've developed jointly with some of our allies, 
heaven forbid they're they're having to be used, right? But at the same time, does that provide opportunities to learn and become more effective? Absolutely. And and a lot of that occurs during coalition activities. So Trey touched on a point earlier about simultaneous engagements. If if someone's going to launch a, an attack, it's going to be a, a combination of offensive air, defensive air, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles. That environment is is uh, very difficult to understand. So certainly working with our allies and friends, whether that's the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia or South Korea or Taiwan or any number of other countries, European especially, we learned how to adapt single integrated air pictures, how to understand how to look at the battlefield and to make sure we also don't cause uh, shooting down of, of our own airplanes, as an example, in that battle space, which has happened in the past. So do we learn? Absolutely. And can we learn more through war games and exercises? That's absolutely a fundamental piece of integrated air and missile defense because I think the chairman said it best. We have to operate with our allies and friends because ballistic missiles and cruise missiles are not expensive to build. Now, the intercontinental ballistic ones are, but these short-range missiles are very easy to construct. So we have to be able to rely on our allies and friends across the world in, in coalition activities. Trey? So, Matthew mentioned something called a single integrated air picture, which is, that, and that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I mentioned about the combat commanders having to have situation awareness of, of what's happening in the battlefield. And especially the missile challenges uh, can be very daunting because when you stop and think about it, if you fire a long-range missile from North Korea uh, toward the United States, that's going to go through several combat commanders' areas of operation. So anything from the U.S. Forces Korea commander to the Pacific commander to the NORTHCOM commander. So having all of those commanders and command staffs, uh, having them share a common understanding of what's actually happening is critically important. Uh, and we do learn a lot from our allies, and we do learn a lot from the threats that have occurred and have been executed against Israel. And we do a lot of uh, lessons learned sharing with the Israelis and with our other allies as we face these threats going into the future. So, Matthew and, and Trey, what you've described, where are we prioritizing uh, our investments? So I think in a couple of areas, um, space is critically important, not only from a detection perspective, and I think Trey described the kill chain or the ballistic missile chain. So being able to effectively detect and, and engage threats as, earlier, as early as possible is absolutely critical. And, you know, someday space-based interceptors or space-based lasers are certainly a possibility. I realize that can be controversial. Um, but certainly in the area of space, we have to learn also about communications, constantly being able to track and, and understand where these threats are coming from and where they're heading towards, especially as Trey alluded to earlier, the maneuverability of some of these new threats. So I think that's certainly one of the technologies, sensors, communications, being able to rapidly communicate not only with our allies and friends, but also communicating with the weapons. And communicating with the weapons can help you be able to divert a capability that's already been launched to also maneuver, uh, as an example. I mean, certainly some of the other technologies uh, we're looking at, uh, or the U.S. government is looking at, uh, is multiple object kill vehicles to be able to address the problem of MIRVs and also some less mature threats that can have countermeasures as a part of them, and also to assure that that kill occurs far outside of the atmosphere where, where other bad things can happen. Uh, once it gets back into the atmosphere. So that's certainly some of the investments. So let, let's talk in a little more detail about the kill chain because I referenced it earlier, but in detail, whether you're talking about air defense or especially missile defense, there's a chain of events that have to occur for you to be successful in defending against these threats. The first thing is you need to detect the threat, uh, whether that's uh, an aircraft flying into a radar beam, 
or whether it is a satellite that detects the plume of the launch of a ballistic missile uh, toward the uh, defended area. The next thing you have to be able to do is to track that. And the more that you can track that target throughout its trajectory, whether it is an aircraft uh, flight path or whether it's a missile, the much higher probability you're going to have of destroying that target. And then the third phase is you have to be able to engage that threat, either with a kinetic weapon like the missiles that we have, the interceptors that we have deployed today, or with a non-kinetic weapon that would be something like a laser that Matthew referred to, a laser beam or something like that. Uh, Then you have to be able to understand that you actually kill that target and transmit that to the entire command and control system. And all of that has to be coordinated through a command and control system. Is that that important just as a layperson? Is that important? Because then you can divert resources to other You can, places. first of all, you won't waste interceptors uh, yeah. if you know you've killed a target because uh, you don't have to launch more interceptors if you know you've killed it. Uh, but it's also to make sure that the left hand and the right hand knows what's going on. So, uh, uh, Matthew mentioned that we had instances of fratricide in uh, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. We've had them in almost every conflict. The more situation awareness you have and the more capable command and control system to have, the less likely you are to have those types of incidents. Go ahead. Mike. And, and well, I was going to expand on, and, I, and what Trey said earlier, and I think you alluded to it, Roger, as well, is, is being able to link the current air defense capabilities with the ballistic missile defense capabilities also improves through integration, right? You're able to see more, you have more backup systems, uh, and you're able to go far more into depth. And that becomes very important as adversaries and potential adversaries are developing capabilities like Trey alluded to earlier, hypersonics, that directly are used to go after where we have potential weak points. And the more you integrate, the more capability you actually have. So you don't have to necessarily buy as many capabilities. And so integration can buy you a a, a great deal. So let me give you one specific example of, of the value of integration. If you have a ship, an Aegis ship, that is stationed off of an island that it is defending, an island like the size of Japan, for example. Typically, that may take as many as three or four Aegis ships to be able to to fulfill that mission. If you're able to integrate the Aegis ship and its interceptors and its radar with a land-based radar like we have deployed to Japan, now you can multiply that defended area many times. So you're able to defend a much larger area with a single ship. So that gives you cost savings in force structure, or it can give you much higher probability of kill uh, in an in engagement and a, the ability to handle larger and larger raid sizes of, of inbound threat missiles. So that integrated defense layered system, system, mm-hmm. system yes, system. Thank, thank you, Matthew. I appreciate it. Um, does that mm-hmm. help eliminate the seams Potentially, in the radar? It helps too? eliminate the seams. I mean, there will always be seams based seams upon our gaps, capabilities. Right? Yeah, seams are gaps or, or where a radar can only see so far or a sensor can only see so far radars and sensors. Okay. Well, we're at the break, gentlemen. My guests today are Trey Obering, Executive Vice President for Booz Allen, Christian Hoff and Matthew Haas are both principals with Booz Allen Hamilton, the integrated air, air and missile defense team. And when we come back, I have a question about uh, artificial intelligence and the role it may or may not be playing in this. And also uh, talk a little bit about uh, Booz Allen's support of the department in this area and what these gentlemen are doing and, and seeing. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Fed News Radio 1500 AM, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are from Booz Allen Hamilton's Integrated Air and Missile Defense Team. Uh, we have Trey Obering, who is an Executive Vice President, 
Matthew Haas and Christian Hoff, who are principals with Booz Allen. And uh, when we took the break, I had mentioned artificial intelligence, and I wasn't referring to myself, or maybe I was, um, <laughs> um, depending how you define artificial intelligence. Um, but Trey, I wanted to just you know, have you touch on that for a moment. I mean, when, you, when you were talking, you and Matthew, about the integrated uh, defense systems mm-hmm. and what the role artificial intelligence the potential role it could play in that. Sure, Roger. So uh, actually, there's there's several applications, but when you stop and think about it and you step back, artificial intelligence is really the synergistic compilation of masses amounts of information at speeds much faster than humans can process. And in the integrated air and missile defense arena, it certainly lends itself to that because uh, typically a lot of these engagements and a lot of these attacks and the speeds involved, you're going to have to have systems that can think for themselves they obviously have to have a human in with respect to the control of the release of the system to allow it to operate, but there's great opportunities for the application of artificial intelligence. One example would be, um, we mentioned earlier that going into the future, we're going to build interceptors that have multiple kill vehicles on each interceptor. And so having the ability for those interceptors to talk to each other, those kill vehicles to talk to each other in real time at speeds that could be approaching uh, seven, eight, nine kilometers per second as they're closing in on a target would be extremely valuable to have and to leverage and harness that kind of technology. Yeah, there could be do a whole separate show on like yeah, the, the ethics of humans versus artificial. Humans will always be in control, yeah. but it's where the human control is applied is what's critically important. Right. So now I want to turn a little bit just, you know, we've got a lot of great background information and, and about what's going on in the world right now and the state of technology a little bit. And we'll talk some more about that later. But Christian, I wanted to to ask you about, you know, how uh, Booz Allen is supporting the department as it continues the, and it's an ongoing challenge, right? You know, always, you know, adversaries, whoever they may be, are, you know, increasing their capability. And, you know, our goal, obviously, as a country is to always stay one step ahead. What What is Booz Allen doing to support the department right now? Yeah, thank you, Roger. Um, we're actually performing a lot of functions across the services, the combatant commands, uh, DARPA, Missile Defense Agency, as well as uh, Office Secretary of Defense uh, around IAMD and its components. Booz Allen, we don't build IAMD hardware, uh, and therefore our work, our support, and recommendations really are focused on the best of breed uh, solution and what it can be and what it should be. Um, our approach uh, for each client is uh, an effort as an agnostic uh, and an independent support uh, provider that leads us to be the trusted agent for our clients. Uh, often when people think of Booz Allen, it's around our analytics, our digital, cyber, or consulting capabilities, which is certainly true, but we're also the technical maturation agent or the key technical supporter and trusted agent of the organizations. Um, on the programmatic side, you know, we help our clients with uh, policy development, uh, acquisition strategies to reduce costs and other innovations that will help uh, the government achieve uh, the IAMD capabilities that they're seeking. So, Christian, just to follow up on that, it's interesting. So it sounds like you touch, Booz Allen touches the department on multiple different levels and layers. To me, I, I see that as a great opportunity to, you know, just provide best value across the board, whether it's, you know, because the policy has to be, you have to understand what's going on on the ground to you know, figure out what the policies should say, and to be agnostic, and you have to have the technical expertise to advise the requirements development. It seems like a pretty powerful set of capabilities. 
I think Matthew, it, okay. I, I think it does. Yeah, I'm going to steal the question from Christian. But a lot of this is what we would call thought leadership. And yes, we are the independent agnostic uh, provider. But as we talk about thought leadership, that really ranges from everything from acquisition through policy all the way through the technical pieces of that. And and when we say as a technical maturation agent, that's a trusted agent role. And whether that's a U.S. client or a foreign client, oftentimes you know, many companies will sell their wares. We sell ourselves. We sell our intellectual capability. And and so from that aspect, we are independent. We can select a best-of-breed solution that might be far outside of the norm of what the government might, might typically understand. And a foreign government, the answer sometimes may not be a U.S. product for some reasons, whether that's an ITAR restriction or or some other policy restriction. So they're able to trust us and understand that that we're not selling our solution. We're literally just selling people. So that's an interesting approach. And, and Trey, I know that you've worked with a lot of different government clients and has spoken about the technical maturation agent. Maybe you can. Well, the only other thing I would add, Matthew and Roger, is the fact that it's also the breadth of Booz Allen. And like you said, Roger, we are at the combat commanders. We are at the services components. Uh, we're at the Pentagon, at the levels of pe- at the Pentagon. We're at the Missile Defense Agency. We're at DARPA. So we can also help be an integrating agent across all of those different activities and really help the effort when you really try to integrate what can be very difficult activities to try to do that across any bureaucracy, uh, no matter how small or large, but especially the DOD and all that is entailed to provide a truly integrated air and missile defense capability. Yeah, and I think what Trey just alluded to is critical. The services have a limited number of platforms, right? Navy has only a certain number of ships, Air Force a certain number of planes, et cetera. So a company like Booz Allen, I was just thinking back to some of the work we've been doing around hypersonic defense. There are equities with inside of the services. And our ability to be able to help bridge those differences sometimes is critical because oftentimes government decision makers are so focused on the problem of today and the problem of tomorrow, they sometimes do need that support, that thought leadership to be able to understand what that organization is really thinking about. It's not just no, but it's breaking down those stovepipes and being sometimes able to increase collaboration uh, among these different stakeholders. That's a critical part of what Booz Allen provides. So you're bringing integrated capabilities or you know or domain expertise because you have to understand your customer yes. right yeah. both from a you know capability perspective but also as you described from an equities perspective and an organizational perspective sure. and then you have to understand technologies that are out there mm-hmm. and where the market's going and then you have to understand what adversaries are doing with the technologies and where they're going, and even beyond that, what their intentions may or may not be and what they're trying to accomplish, right? All those things go into it. Is that fair to say? In fact, what you just described, Roger, (laughs) is what we call one of our critical market advantages is the fact that we have very, very deep technical and engineering expertise combined with over 100 years of consulting expertise because consulting stretches across all the different attributes that you just laid out, and that is a differentiator for us. Right. Um, I really want to ask about hypersonic, but mm-hmm. uh, but maybe we'll save that for the last segment. Um, another thing that sort of struck me in, in describing um, what you do for the services, it also sort of, to me, is something where, um, you know, the customer has to believe that they can trust you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's about, you know, performance, right? And being able to provide that agnostic sort of even-keeled advice. Sure. Um, when you're dealing with the department or any customer like that, 
What do you, what do you hear on a daily basis from the customer uh, about their what they're looking for you to do? So I'm going to answer that question in this way, that we go into a client sometimes for a specific reason. And in that discussion, and we're supporting a client, whether U.S., commercial, or, or foreign even, and they have a set of challenges that they know about. What's interesting is you get into that discussion with them, and oftentimes you'll say, well, what else? Or have you thought about this? And, and it sometimes opens up an entire new area that some clients and some government customers don't want to admit that they don't know what they don't know. Uh, that's and where, yeah, and, that's and very sometimes that, that approach, because we're not selling our own solutions, right, software, hardware solutions, they begin to trust us because they also see our ability to be able to reach out across 24,000 plus people and pull somebody from California who might be that expert and bring them to Washington. Or we go out and rapidly hire the best of breed independent consultant. And so that ability to also be able to surge together and answer to a question that may not just be technical, there might be a policy aspect, there might be a financial aspect or an economic or political aspect. Mm-hmm. So being able to bound that entire answer together, I think is one of the, one of the areas where Booz is so strong. Yeah. My guests today are Trey Obering, Executive Vice President, Christian Hoff and Matthew Haas, principals from Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, the Booz Allen Hamilton Integrated Air and Missile Defense Team. And when we come back, we'll talk about what's coming next. Uh, we'll get to talk about hypersonic capabilities and what those are and what they mean. You hear a lot about them in the news these days. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are from Booz Allen's Integrated Air and Missile Defense Team. Dre Obering is an Executive Vice President. Christian Hoff and Matthew Haas are both principals with Booz Allen. And when I took the break, we were, I mentioned hypersonic capabilities or weapons and what they are and why um, people are paying attention to them now. And I'm going to start with you, Trey, to talk a little about what are they, I guess, for, as a first step. Okay. Uh, by definition, a hypersonic uh, vehicle is something that travels above uh, five times the speed of sound. And what's interesting about uh, integrated air and missile defense is that, uh, as we talked about earlier, you have air defenses and air threats that are typically, an air threat could be a cruise missile that is a uh, fairly high maneuvering missile, fairly slow missile, pretty difficult to detect on radar, but not impossible, and the speeds are are relatively slow. Uh, And you have a ballistic missile that typically is very, very high altitude in space, very, very fast, not maneuvering at all, and very difficult to detect on, on radar. Well, the hypersonic missile combines both of those. So it begins its, its life as a ballistic missile, typically being launched with a booster. And then there are different variants, but typically what will happen is it will then re-enter the atmosphere and then glide or be powered to a target. And it's also at very high speed above Mach 5 and can be maneuvering to the target. So now that begins to uh, do a lot of things. Number one, it complicates a ballistic missile defense system. And number two, it can overwhelm an air defense system. And so that threat in and of itself is forcing a much tighter integration of air and missile defense as we go forward into the future. And so the investments that are being made and how things are going, I know you know, you, you mentioned at the very beginning of the show about air defense and missile defense, you know, the, the, the two times that this country has been, you know, had a surprise attack are, were both through the air. You know, is this sort of the biggest area of threat? Is the space part of this? You know, is space another piece of the puzzle? Um, can you talk sure. a little bit about that? I can. So, um, in fact, 
I believe that defense against the hypersonic threat is one of the highest priorities in the department today. Uh, that's been reflected by several of the senior officials in recent statements that they've made publicly. And I think it's critically important that we aggressively move to defend against these. And we can. We have the technology that can do this. Uh, it's just a matter of having the will and the resources to do this. And if I go back to 9-11 for just one moment, and let's put the cost of all of this into context. So uh, let's just take the Missile Defense Agency, for example. Uh, if you go back to 1983, when it was first stood up by President Reagan as a strategic defense initiative organization, and you go all the way forward to today, we have spent about $200 billion in missile defense by this country in that time frame. If you look at the attack at 9-11, and that was two of civilian airliners and one at the Pentagon and one that went into the ground in Pennsylvania, the loss of life was absolutely terrible. But the financial cost of that uh, has been put at over $3 trillion when you take into account the economic impact uh, cost. And that wasn't even a weapon of mass destruction. So if you are able to stop a weapon of mass destruction that is mounted on either ballistic missile or a hypersonic missile and stop that attack, uh, you have just paid for all the money that we spent on missile defense alone five or six times over. So I think it's very, very important that we address this threat and that we do achieve a tighter and tighter integrated air and missile defense. And in doing that, as Matthew said, and I'll turn over to him, one of the best things to do is to uh, begin a much more robust move into space because that is what, that's the first key uh, in the hypersonic threat defense. So just to, before sure. uh, Matthew, so to me what you've described too is this, uh, the word that came into mind is insurance. Yes. Right? It's a cost of the world we live in, right? We have to be it's able even to make- better. It's even better than insurance because insurance will reimburse you after the fact. Yeah, what we're trying true. to do is prevent the attack to start with. Right. Matthew? And, and just to emphasize that point, I mean, if you look at South Korea, Taiwan, a number of other countries, the oil impact, the economic punch that can result from any number one of these ballistic missile attacks is key. But where I wanted to go was absolutely to focus on space, but also to extend from that piece is, number one, space plays such an important role um, in both IAMD and, and ballistic missile defense. And we need to start treating space like it is. It is weaponized, right? There's ASATs, there's numbers of other capabilities, anti-satellite weapons. So space is part of our architecture, and it has to be an enhanced part of our architecture. As I think about hypersonic and, and integrated air and missile defense and, and some of those capabilities, we need to make it a national priority. This country can do almost anything when it puts its mind to it. Certainly our adversaries or peer countries around hypersonic offensive weapons are making it a national priority, and we need to as well, to be able to harness those capabilities and to rapidly deploy them. Some of the criticism you've heard is, is why is our acquisition approach so time-consuming? It takes decades to be able to deploy something. This country can do it quicker. And I think, as Trey alluded to in the speeches uh, and public comments that have been made by some of the decision-makers, there is an enhanced approach on that. Uh, and there needs to be, because these weapons could be deployed tomorrow, and, and they are a direct threat. So certainly as I think of the future, I, I think of multiple object kill vehicle, as Trey alluded to, to be able to, to address this. Certainly space and hypersonic defense uh, around the world, as well as, by the way, supporting our allies and friends. Uh, the reality is a lot of that regional defense is going to have to be carried by the allies, uh, and the capabilities to be able to do that is something the U.S. can and should be providing um, to not only rely on for their own defense, uh, but also to provide additional capabilities, God forbid, that we have to get involved in a, in a conflict overseas. 
okay, there's space, there's hypersonic. Yeah. Is there other, are there other things coming down the? Yeah, there are. There are, Roger, if I could jot it. So and this is, of course, one of the areas that I'm working in today at Booz Allen, and that's the area of directed energy. Uh, we have made tremendous advances uh, over the last uh, several years in the area of high-energy lasers. Uh, when I was the director of the Missile Defense Agency, uh, one of the programs I was responsible for was the Airborne Laser System. Uh, that was a megawatt-class laser on a 747 uh, that was flying at roughly 30,000 feet or, or so. Right after I retired, uh, they, they successfully shot down both a solid uh, propellant missile as well as a liquid propellant missile in their boost phases. Um, but it was a test program that was really trying to validate the technology and validate could we be operationally effective with these kind of weapons. And they did that. And But back then, we were funding rich and technology poor, frankly, because we were at the very edge of the technology. Today, huh. we are technology-rich and funding poor, and we need to apply more funding into direct energy because we do have the ability to be able to provide boost-phase missile defense with direct energy and really enhance the capabilities that we have going into the future. You know, one other piece I just was thinking about is is cyber defense. You know, the, the good and the bad news, and Booz Allen spends a lot of time among many, many clients on cyber, but there is often a temptation just to keep throwing money at the problem. Instead of trying to bound the problem, use thought leadership to be able to come up with with innovative ways to be able to address that. And I, I certainly see that as the future, not only offensive cyber, but certainly defensive cyber, and being able to find more efficient ways of, of addressing that threat versus just throwing more and more money at a, at a threat that can be changed very quickly and, and very easily. But it's a real and, and present danger to the U.S. today and our allies. So, and just what are the, and this is an open-ended question, may not be, so, you know, you talked about, you know, the laser capability, and I can remember reading about, you know, what you said it was 747, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. doing successfully. Is it the f- investment that, you know, sort of hamstrings our ability to deploy? Is it the still technological challenges? The, what, the, what are you, what's your thought? Sure. So the airborne laser, as I said, uh, had some operational challenges for that to be actually fielded as an operational weapon, but it demonstrated the fact that that the the technology is achievable. What's changed is the nature of the lasers themselves. We're moving out of the chemical lasers that we had on the air, airborne laser to solid state lasers, to uh, combined fiber lasers, uh, to hybrid lasers, uh, what we call the uh, uh, diode pump lasers, and these lasers are able to get higher and higher power with much less size, much less weight, much less volume and power input requires. And so we are we're no longer technology limited. We're really funding limited because there are several paths that I'm aware of where we could really truly be able to get an airborne laser type performance from some of these other lasers if we just had more money, added more money to these programs. We're only spending about, last year we spent about $600 million across the department on directed energy. Uh, I think the request now is about $1.2 going into next year. Uh, I think that uh, we could spend a lot more and be much more productive in that area. Right, would it save a lot of money in the long run? I mean, I'm thinking about you know, you know, having to keep making stuff. You shoot stuff, right? And then you have to make more stuff. With laser, it's like you That's turn right. it on, turn it off. Turn it on, turn it Am I right? Take, or am I wrong? Take missile defense. Uh, right now, we have to uh, fire multiple multi-million dollar interceptors at a single uh, uh, inbound missile. Target. Right, huh. right. With a laser you're able to shoot down multiple inbound missiles with a single laser. And with some of the technology that we have today and that we're, we're going to have in the near future, they have very, very uh, deep magazines so that they can fire for quite a long time. So it is a very, very cost-effective way to address right. some of the threats that we're going to be facing. going. And, and even future. earlier in the phases of flight, you shoot a missile down over boost phase, dropping it on 
you know, the own threat the, the, country. The people who just shot it. it. it yeah, <laughs> it certainly makes you think twice about shooting another one and, and the potential damage to the infrastructure, et cetera. So yeah, Trey's absolutely right. Earlier in the time frame, easy to repeat. You don't waste your inventory or you're able to focus your inventory, frankly, on those threat missiles that are leakers that, that get through that first set of defense and being able to focus that. So you're telling me that's there's a huge return on investment. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And on that note, we have to end the show. I want to thank my guests today, Trey Obering, Executive Vice President, Christian Hoff, and Matthew Haas, who are principals with Booz Allen Hamilton. We've been talking about integrated air and missile defense with the Booz Allen Hamilton Integrated Air and Missile Defense Domain Experts. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.